Hello to all of our wonderful listeners. Welcome back to the NetSuite podcast. I'm your host, Kendall Fisher, and you just tuned in to our Office of the CFO series, which means I am back and better than ever with our business and finance editor, Megan O'Brien. How's it going, Megan? Oh, it's going really well, Kendall. As always, I'm just ready to learn more about our podcast guests. We've had some really amazing people on the show. We certainly have with many, many more to come, Um, but I am excited to get into this episode with Susie Tahirian, CFO of Expansive, a global market for ESG inclusive commodities. She has also had many finance roles in absolutely fascinating companies, ranging from startups to massive corporations, which makes for a really unique story and journey that I am so excited to dive into. Yes, so she talks about each of these roles, plus some of the major strategies she's helped to execute at each, like mergers and acquisitions, IPOs, and she's even on the board of a company. So I think she has some expertise that our listeners are going to be wanting to hear. Absolutely. And and you'll even hear about how technology and data has really remained core to her success in all of this, and especially at her current company, which is on the forefront of a rapidly growing new area of the market. Kendall, this podcast has been in the works for a while, and I don't know about you, but I'm excited for our audience to hear all about it. Should we jump on in? I think we should. That's all coming up next. You're listening to the NetSuite Podcast, where we discuss what's happening within NetSuite, why we're doing it, and where we're heading in the future. We'll dive into the details about the software and the people at NetSuite who are behind all the moving parts. We'll also feature customer growth stories, discussing the ups and downs of running a company and how one integrated system can help your business continue to scale. Hi, Susie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Kendall, Megan. Great to be here. Where are you recording from today? Um, uh, from my home office near our office in San Francisco. Nice. Nice. I love San Francisco. Um, we spent, you know, we, our headquarters used to be up in Redwood Shores, but we moved to Austin, (laughs) but when it was Redwood Shores, we would spend a lot of time up there. You know, actually we've been, we've been starting our podcast episodes with a fun little icebreaker because what better way to do, to do it than to be cliche. Right. (laughs) Um, and actually clearly Megan chose this one for today's episode Mm -hmm. because she, she's asking what is the best food you've ever eaten? Susie. Uh, food is a great icebreaker, so I could go on for this forever, but um, <laughs> I'm going to say uh, uh, home cooking, cooking at my mom's house, because um, mm. that's the best. And also, I'm hoping she might listen to the podcast and maybe I'll win some brownie points for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's great. Wait, so Megan, since this was a question that you plugged in for today's episode, what's the best food you've ever had? Okay, so I studied abroad in Italy, in Rome, and... There was this gelato place where they would take the gelato and dip it in like this hard chocolate shell. And uh, I went there multiple times a day. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Get like a one euro cone. It's called Frigidarium. If anyone's ever going to Rome, I, it sticks with me. I love it. Wow. Wow. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty amazing. Um, it's funny. it's funny. I'm sitting here like picking my brain going, what is the best food I've ever eaten? And I got, go I, I, like, 
whatever what? comes to you go with like your gut. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, I, I think it might, I think Susie, I'm going to piggyback off of you. My, my mom used to always make this thing that we called chicken dish. And I know that sounds so weird, but it was like chicken and curry and cheese and mayo and like, a like chicken. Uh, uh, it was, I don't know. There was like a mixture with mayo and curry and something else. And, uh, <laughs> It was, I don't know. It was like one of my favorite meals ever. And I still will make it pretty much every Sunday. So I gotta, I guess I gotta stick with that. It is one of my favorite foods of all time for sure. Okay. Well now my mom's going to be mad. So thanks guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mom. Maybe have her skip this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, let's make, I guess the transition from food to food for thought. But um, <laughs> we are we are here to talk about your amazing career and some takeaways you might have for finance prof- professionals who are tuning in right now, Susie. So let's um let's start from the beginning if you're cool with that. You studied mechanical engineering at UC Davis, right? Yes, I did. Uh huh. So I'm assuming that going into finance wasn't your original plan. What were your original career goals, and why did they change? Um, So I read a book about life of Madame Curie when I was in like fourth grade and I was inspired and I was going to uh, solve world's problems using science and technology. And specifically, I was really passionate about physics and nuclear fusion. So I was going to be a nuclear engineer and solve the energy problem with renewable nuclear fusion. Um, Yeah, that was the plan. Um, But then I went to college and I studied mechanical engineering um, and then I became a little practical because it came apparent to me very quickly that the, the world and market and technology of nuclear fusion wasn't quite ready for today. Um, so I pivoted and uh, went into consulting and I uh, had to get a job and join the workforce. So uh, that's where it changed. So after you graduated school, like you mentioned, you went to um, go work for Accenture for a few years as a consultant. And then you went and got your MBA at Northwestern, which I actually grew up less than a mile from. Um, my dad went there as well, so I love it. Uh, what made you want to get your MBA? Um, so uh, engineering was a great undergraduate degree, um, but I had n- really no business skills. Um, and the MBA was really valuable for me. I, I didn't know accounting. I didn't know marketing. I didn't have any you know, finance tools. I had good analytical tools, and I knew my way around with numbers, but um, there's a lot of knowledge I was missing. And so the MBA was great for that. Um, and Northwestern was fantastic. Like I say, those those two winners killed me. I'm a mm-hmm. California girl. <laughs> That's why I'm out in Colorado now. People think it's like a lot colder out in the mountains. And I'm like, no, nah, not compared to Chicago. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> True. So you said it was it was great. Would you recommend getting your MBA to other finance professionals? Was it something that you thought was worth it? I thought it was really valuable for me. I, I think if someone has already a finance or accounting or business undergraduate degree, um, there might not be as much value added. Uh, for me, it was tremendous. Um, and the other benefit, of course, is if you go to a um, top tier business school, you, you build some relationships and networks, which I found to be incredibly useful later in life. And as someone who didn't have a background in business, did you find that there was a steep learning curve in getting your MBA or did your time at Accenture and then presumably a lot of comfort with numbers as a mechanical engineer kind of prepare you for those courses? I think the work experience was really valuable. And, and I, I do think it's good to get some work experience before jumping back for an MBA. Um, but so I had good analytical skills, but really the knowledge base wasn't there. So there was a lot for me to learn. Um, 
I don't know if it was such a steep learning curve, but it was definitely contributed a lot more tools to my toolbox. Well, so do you think that having a background in mechanical engineering has kind of brought a different perspective to how you approach, first of all, business school, but also how you just approach financial roles in general? Absolutely. I, I you know, the, the great thing about being an engineer is it teaches you how to solve problems. So I approach this CFO role as how do I solve problems? I'm not so much focused on accounting for accounting's sake, but accounting to get numbers and insights to help me solve the problems for the business um, and be more of a business partner. So I think it changes my uh, tone and my approach um, and the role I take on as CFO. Absolutely. Well, kind of speaking of that, that role as a CFO, I think in order to get to the CFO position, we have to go through your professional background. Um, and Megan and I have done a, quite a bit of research on you. Um, you have, you've, you've experienced a lot of great Uh-oh. roles with some really <laughs> not too deep. Don't worry. Um, a lot of you, you've, you've had a lot of great roles though, with, within some really interesting international, um, experiences and, and a bunch of other stuff. But again, I could, I could summarize it, but I thought it'd be good. Susie, can you actually take our listeners through your career history and in whatever way you, uh, you're, you're capable of doing that? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Sure. The the short version of it is, um, after getting my business degree, I was recruited by Exxon. Um, obviously, you know, the theme, right. The energy sector was of my interest, um, and worked there for a while in supply trading, um, and then uh, gravitated towards Chevron. Uh, Chevron had a leadership development program that I really liked. Um, and all, a lot of the uh, finance leaders and actually executive leaders of Chevron have come through that program. Um, so I thought it'd be a great place as a young person to kind of build my career. And I put together, believe it or not, a 15-year career plan. I wrote out and said, okay, if I want to be a CFO, it looks like CFO needs to know budgeting and forecasting. They need to have financing experience, maybe a little bit of M&A, certainly have international experience controller, internal control, Sarbanes-Oxley, internal audit, that kind of stuff. And I sort of wrote out what I thought I'd like my 15-year plan to be. And it didn't go exactly according to plan, but I did manage to um, find opportunities to get the skill sets I needed that were in that plan. Um, and, and Chevron was really supportive in kind of that professional development. So I got a pretty well-rounded career through that, which was great because it positioned me very well when I left Chevron to be CFO. Uh, I did a lot of M&A. I did um, internal control, Sarbanes-Oxley, internal audit. I also did budgeting and forecasting, um, sort, of, sort of the gamut of finance experiences you need, treasury, banking, to have the full suite of experiences for CFO. So that worked really well. And then after that, I've, I've been uh, CFO of various uh, small startups helping them grow, um, which I enjoy tremendously. And, and often, again, sticking to that theme of looking for sustainable energy or renewable energy or solving energy issues. Um, it's yeah. sort of been a theme in the, the, the roles I've taken from there on. Well, that's cool. I mean, again, like maybe you didn't go into the exact field you 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 studied in undergrad, but it's it's really cool to hear how you've tied this all together. It's that common theme in your life still. I think that's awesome. I like how goal oriented you are. I feel like people ask me what my five year plan is, and I'm like, I don't know, probably, <laughs> probably still here. <laughs> we'll see. Well, it doesn't exactly map to it, so that's that's only thing I caution people because stuff happens. Um, mm-hmm. um, but you sort of give yourself a general path, and then uh, it gives you some direction to go to. Well, stuff happens. Let's talk about your time at Chevron since you worked there for almost 15 years in a lot of roles. So you were a controller for Chevron but you were actually a control, controller for Chevron Argentina. 
which is crazy. Did you live in Argentina for the role or were you still based in the U.S.? I lived in Buenos Aires and it was fantastic. I got to oh, say, cool. lovely, amazing people, amazing natural beauty. I mean, they've got waterfalls in the north and glaciers in the south. If you like steak and red wine, it is absolutely heaven. So I yeah, <laughs> loved it. Loved it. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Wow. How long were you there for? About two years, a little over two years. So what did your controller role entail there and what skills do you think you need to be successful in it for our listeners? It was a great experience. It was a tough role because obviously a controller is responsible for all the accounting functions, um, accounts payable, accounts receivable, um, closing the books, um, internal control. Um, so it was a pretty significant role. Um, and in Argentina, we did uh, our books in US GAAP, IFRS in US dollars and Argentina pesos. And we did it in Spanish. So I had to pretty quickly learn Spanish on top of being familiar with our business and the accounting for it. Wow. So do you still know Spanish? A little bit. Um, my Spanish got a little watered down because I took a job later um, as CFO of a German company. <laughs> so my oh, language just no. got a little mixed up. Um, but at the time <laughs> I was pretty fluent. I, and I found it actually very helpful to have a lot of meetings in Spanish. Um, sort of for um, team building, really, and building relationships. Um, and I found the team was more comfortable in Spanish. Yeah, like the control effort there. wasn't hard enough. Let's do it in a different language. <laughs> right, exactly. That's so funny. Well, so do you think the skills that you needed to be successful in the controller role then, do you think they're the same now? Um, somewhat. Uh, the big difference, I think, is technology has become more and more important. And we were, even when I was there, automating a lot of processes um, because as businesses grow, you rely more heavily on technology and automation. Um, so I think actually uh, my background as an engineer and my experience um, in software development Accenture were really valuable in understanding software and how we could use it. Um, so I think that's a big part that's changing. Um, technology is becoming a much more important part of the CFO role today, a controller role too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. You, you're you're hitting on that now. And we are definitely going to dive into that, um, in just a bit here, but, but first I, I also, uh, I want to talk about your time as, um, director of budgeting and forecasting over at Chevron budgeting and forecasting has been of uh, particular interest to our audience lately for a lot of reasons. Um, obviously both activities have been particularly difficult nowadays, considering all the disruption of the economic volatility, but can you quickly dive into what that role involved at Chevron? Yeah, this was a uh, this was a really fun job. Um, Chevron had a very large motor oil business globally. It spanned over 100 countries. I think we're in, I want to say 140 countries. And the budgeting, forecasting, and developing strategic plan by country for each business. So incredibly detailed work. And of wow. course, the, the trends were different in different countries. And I was doing this in 2008 with the subprime mortgage globally. Economies were crashing, volumes were dropping off, sales were falling off. So it was a very difficult time to forecast ahead. Um, so I picked an incredibly volatile time to be in that role. I remember at one point, the CFO asked me to, he said, why don't you print the business plan and bring it to the next executive meeting? Uh, and I did the math and I said, I think that the business plan for this business is about 3,000 pages. Um, oh my it was wow. multiple billion dollar business. So it was a 
very large business, very complex, multiple countries. So it was great training grounds in developing business plans and budgets and doing it in a very volatile time. So a lot of uncertainty. What we did is we developed fairly um, flexible models. So I could sit in the executive sessions and if they asked and said, what if we increased our marketing spend here? Or what if we uh, dropped our price there? We could quickly dynamically run it through the model and see at, at a sort of a high level what that would look like so they could make uh, real-time business decisions. Um, it was a really interesting job. I, I don't think that was the best, easiest time to do it in, uh, but an incredible learning experience um, and incredibly impactful. So that this had been a business that had been losing money for Chevron for years when I stepped into it. Um, and we looked at the business plan. We anticipated that we'd see a significant drop-off in the business, which means you have to reduce the overhead and costs that the business can support. So some really tough decisions about how much cost cutting to do. And I had to really think about what was cost that we could take out of the system and what was a cost that really supported the business. And you're cutting costs, but it's actually reducing revenue and gross profit. Um, and we were able to turn around that business um, to hit $500 million bottom line profit. Wow. Um, and to do that during a recession is wow. pretty incredible. So I've learned a lot of a lot of skill sets from that experience that I've taken to other roles after that. I mean, definitely you, Susie, you just hit, you just hit on so many things that we're hearing from all of our NetSuite customers right now. You know, how, how do you decrease overhead costs? How do you decrease costs in general? How do you become more automated, more efficient, more productive? to improve the bottom line, all of these things that you just hit on is what we're hearing from our, from, I mean, across the board, but we're talking to our NetSuite customers every day and hearing this, any advice on, you know, maybe they're not in a planning and budgeting role or a planning and forecasting role, but any advice for the CFOs or the finance leaders right now to make sure they're making the, the, the business, they're making the right decisions to really navigate these economic times. Like any thoughts there that you could provide? Yeah. This, this is another time where it's difficult to do forecasting. Um, yeah. I, I tend to try to get a lot of data, um, try to get economic data and then have a good understanding of how that economic data correlates to our business, right? Different, for example, we saw during COVID, some businesses did really well and others did very poorly. So you have to understand what the economic trends are and how that drives your business. Um, so a lot of analysis is helpful. I try to stay close to the board to understand how they want to grow the business going forward. Um, you develop business plans, you want them to be aspirational enough that uh, they're ambitious. Um, but realistic enough that the organization can feel like they can achieve them. Um, so I feel the board gives you that aspirational view, um, but then having really close relationships internally with the business leaders to understand operationally what's achievable. Um, so to kind of get that balance between um, uh, pushing hard, uh, but being realistic, um, and then having a really good um, network of data on what the competitive landscape looks like. So you look internally, at, but you also look externally and, and, and make sure some companies have a lot of internal data of what they think they can do, but you can't lose sight of what your competitors are doing or what other opportunities or threats are coming out around you. Mm. Um, so a tremendous amount of trying to get data, get the right data, um, and then sort of touch base with key stakeholders on it. It's uh, this is what I find is one of the most exciting parts of my job, but it can be quite challenging, you know. 
How did six out of the top seven best-performing tech stocks gain visibility and control over financials, inventory, planning, and budgeting with NetSuite by Oracle? Answers at netsuite.com code, netsuite.com code. So we're going to talk more about your past roles and how they built up your skill set. But first, I want to jump into your current role as CFO of Expansive. Can you tell us a little bit about your company? What does it do? I'm excited, incredibly excited and proud of Expansive. Um, Expansive is a global market infrastructure for data-driven environmental commodities. And let me kind of break down what that means. I, I had, going back to my original goal in life to try to help solve the energy problem. When I was at Chevron, we produced a barrel of oil. Whether that barrel of oil was produced in a very environmentally friendly way with low methane emissions or in a very environmentally unfriendly way with high emissions, that still had the same price. That commodity had the same price. What Expansive does is collect data during that process so you can differentiate between a sustainable barrel of oil and, and the other. And that data then enables the market to price them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talk about ESG commodities or data-driven commodities, and then that mar- the market forces can price them and that can drive the behavior of producing more environmentally friendly or environmentally sustainable um, oil or natural gas, if you will. So the data piece becomes important because that, that transparency about the way that a product is produced gives market information. So a renewable energy source. So for example, um, an electron of electricity that comes out of a solar panel or a wind farm can be priced differently than an electron of electricity that comes from a coal plant. Um, So we are in the business of registering, managing, trading, settling, retiring, analyzing, and and reporting on all these data-driven commodities. We're currently the world's largest online exchange for carbon offsets. Many companies have, have made commitments to go net zero on carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, a lot of the ways they meet that in the short run is buying carbon offsets. And um, they come to our platform um, to buy those carbon offsets, to register those carbon offsets, um, and to get data on it. Last year, our infrastructure uh, allowed for 88% of the carbon offsets globally to be registered and 66% of the renewable energy credits in the U.S. And uh, globally, 93% of the carbon offsets, the voluntary carbon offsets that trade last year traded on um, our exchange. So a pretty fascinating business, um, and I think one that can be quite impactful for the environment. So very, very proud of it, as you can tell. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I would be, yeah. (laughs) So from your description, Expansive seems to be fundamentally rooted in a lot of technology and a large amount of data. Do you think that kind of impacts how you function internally in the business? For instance, do you use a lot of data to make decisions and technology to run business operations? Absolutely, absolutely. We we are very cognizant of the power of data. Um, We have actually have a data business. We collect the data on the exchange, the volume, the, the type of products, the pricing, and we sell that. We have a data subscription business, so we partnered with S&P Platts and we sell our data directly and through S&P Platts. Um, so we're very aware of um, the importance of data and um, the value it has to us and to our customers. And then internally, it also means we tend to be a data-driven analytical business. As we grow, especially and have more and more data 
in, in making our own decisions, um, obviously that becomes important too. How does that compare to past companies that you've worked for? Do you find it more data-driven than past ones or or kind of equivalent? That's a great question. You know, at some companies I've been in, uh, especially older companies and more mature industries, people have been in the habit of making decisions by the gut. Like, eh, I think that guy's a good customer. Let's go with it. Um, so it tends to be a lot less reliance on data because there's history and relationships and um, businesses are older and people who have grown up through that have a habit of making decisions differently. So it, it's a, it can be a huge cultural shift to move over to more analytical decision-making. So yeah, I do think it, it can be different, particularly in mature industries where decision-making is rooted in the past still. Yeah, it's kind of nice that at this point in your career, you get to really focus on embracing data and using it to your advantage because I, I do think that's where everything is going. So not just being rooted in past practices. What role does NetSuite serve for Expansive? Yeah, NetSuite's a critical tool because we can put, obviously all our actual data is collected through that. So it's for our accounting purposes, we use that. Um, but then we you load your budget into that and, and that becomes really powerful. One, to make sure that your budget and forecasting is consistent with how the accounting is done. Um, you can really have a disconnect if, if um, the budgeting is different than accounting, revenue recognition is different, and the budget ex- assumes certain type of revenue, um, but from an accounting perspective, it actually comes in differently. So NetSuite can be really powerful in collecting the tool in one place, um, and it can give access to people um, so they have visibility on how they're tracking on their budget and, and also have data available. So our folks are really good about asking for information on a monthly basis. How am I tracking against my budget? And as they're making decisions going forward, they've got information to make that. Oh, okay, I can um, do salary increases or I can do uh, hiring increases or I can invest in, in additional technology for this part of the business. Um, and that's what can be sort of the source of truth for us. Oh. Excited to hear that, obviously. Um, and we love when we get to work with companies who are so highly focused on data as as yours is. We hear businesses say a lot, oh, we're, we're data-driven, right? But what does that actually mean? And um, and how are you actually, like, what I mean, what are you actually doing with that data? Um, so glad to hear that we are we are a force in uh, in your operations. And, you know, I I do, it's, it's interesting. We've gotten through your whole career history all the way up to expansive and, and what you're doing here and how to, how you're utilizing technology and expansive. And now, now that we've kind of heard your full trajectory, I'm hearing that you've served as CFO for both private and public companies, for big companies, for small companies, for where you are now, this kind of new burgeoning market segment. How has the role really differed between all of these various areas and do you think that's benefited your career? Like ha- having all of this different type of kind of backgrounds and in different industries? Yeah, it, it does. It's interesting. When I got my job as a public company CFO, it was a Canadian company um, listed on the Toronto Exchange. Uh, the, the external counsel sat me down and said, Susie, you can't do this. You can't say this. You have to say this. You, you can't buy shares. You can't sell shares. And I thought, oh my God, there's so much I can't do. Um, in the public company, there is a lot more um, rules, regulations, obviously, that you have to abide by. And it can be somewhat restrictive. And, and it's important to in the trajectory of the company because you have to publicly disclose decisions as you go. For a smaller private company, it can be easier to stay private because 
it gives you a little bit more runway. You don't have to explain on a quarterly basis what you're doing uh, to shareholders. Uh, if you have a company with sort of a long-term growth trajectory, those short-term quarterly reporting can be tough uh, in a public market. So uh, it's been interesting, and I've really enjoyed both roles. And it it is really helpful because some of the companies I've been with um, are small private companies, but have a long-term view of going public. So having been in that seat, I can kind of give them an idea how to plan their path towards that. You have to formalize some processes. You have to build in some processes. You may have to change the accounting. Uh, might have to change your auditors, um, et cetera. So I've been able to coach companies towards the, the public route uh, with a view of being there and, and what that means. And also coach them to think about where it's the right place for a company to go. For some companies at the stage they're in or the type of business they're in, going public may not be right or may not be right at that point in time. So I find that that's... Uh, been pretty helpful in being a better CFO and also being more helpful to companies I've been with. Right. Well, and because you're you're on the board of the New Hold Investment Core, so I'm assuming this is where you're able to give some of that, provide some of that um, consulting. Uh, yes. Yeah, so New Hold Investments Corp is, is interesting. It's a special purpose acquisition company, uh, a SPAC. Uh, it's interesting because I joined the board before SPACs became uh, okay. <laughs> very well known. Yeah. yeah. And then they became just quite the phenomenon. Um, but it was a really great experience because I was on the board of the SPAC at the same time as I was CFO of companies that could potentially partner with the SPAC. So I could see the story from both sides and could give good advice to both of them. I could give advice to our SPAC on how to look for our acquisition targets and how to position our SPAC to be considered um, competitively. But also I could help the companies on how to consider SPAC investment in whether that was the right path for us or not. So first walk us through, you helped guide, you helped guide them into an IPO. Was that 2020? Yeah, we did an IPO in 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Can you explain really quick that process a little um, and give, so, and then I'm going to get into some advice that you have about what it takes to successfully go public. But can you just explain that process a little for somebody who might not quite understand what all goes into it? Yeah, it's, it's really a regulatory process. You're trying to comply with all the SEC rules to share the information and disclosures that you need for the company to be a public company. It's really, it takes a village. You have to have a good investment banker to make sure you have the right story and tell it well and reach the shareholders who'd be interested in that. You have to have a good legal team because there's quite a bit of administrative paperwork, uh, regulatory uh, compliance procedures to follow through. Um, And then you have a good management team that can work through all that while running the company. The tough thing about doing an IPO is it's a tremendous amount of effort, you know, a lot of 16 hour days while you're still running the company. So it's helpful to bring in the outside consultants and also have a strong leadership team in-house who can continue to run the business while the key uh, IPO team goes off and does a roadshow and, and uh, works through that process. Um, wow. And then uh, you get to hopefully get a lot of shareholder interest. And um, uh, I, I actually was really lucky. We got to go ring the bell at NASDAQ, which was really fun. Nice. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Kind of a cool moment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Not a lot of people get to do that. That's that's really cool. So what would you, I mean, obviously I hear what you're saying in terms of like what everything you need that kind of goes into that, but what, what is critical to really successfully going public? Like you said, sometimes it's not the best choice for some businesses. I absolutely agree. There's two things you need. One is you have to have a good story, a company that is ready to go public. That means having some more certainty and predictability around your earnings and growth trajectory, a leadership team that is seasoned and professional, a little bit of a track record to show 
the, how the company's performed. Um, two years ago, I think if you had a good idea and a good leadership team, you could go public. Today, you have to show revenue and profit. So the first thing you need is you have a company that is in a good position to go public. And the second thing you absolutely need is an IPO market that's open. This year, our, our company actually expansive tried to go public, and we went through the whole process in Australia, filed a prospectus and started the roadshow, and then realized the IPO market was closed. We had a good mm-hmm. story. Our company was ready. The market was not. Um, and that's a little bit of a timing and luck. And in our case, we said the market's not ready. We pulled it and went the private route. And you'll see this a lot. You want to make sure that your company is ready at the same time that the IPO market is. If the market's not ready, then you go the private route and wait it out. Um, but also, if the market is ready, but the company is not, you'll see companies that go public and, and uh, don't do well. So it's right. important to have both. Right. How does technology play a role in all this? We just talked about how data is you know at the core of everything expansive does and and when i hear you say you have to have a good story really it's the numbers that are driving that story right so w- what technology is really critical in in a successful ipo um absolutely critical in two ways one is having good technology and and you'll see this in the valuation and the multiples that companies get in an ipo if they have strong technology the market rewards that and values that. Um, having good technology means the company can scale. If you don't have good technology and, and good tools and automated processes, it becomes very manual, then the company can't scale and that impacts the growth rate and growth potential. So technology, having technology becomes really important in the valuation. Um, and then it's also really important in just having the data so you can tell your story, so you can show the historical information and cut and slice it and dice it in the ways that the investors want to see. Um, so it shows your scalability and then it gives them the data that shows that the business is mature enough for investors to be interested in. Well, while we're talking about kind of high profile moves, you've also handled a lot of high value mergers and acquisitions in your career. The most recent from what I've seen is uh, Expansive's acquisition of evolution markets. What do you think are the most important components of a successful merger or acquisition? Um, it's interesting. There's a lot of work that we tend to focus on, on the valuation, on the due diligence, on the negotiation. All those are really, really important. To me, what makes a success or failure of an acquisition is the integration that happens after. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of work that goes on to signing the document. The day after you sign, what you do then is becomes is incredibly important, whether you realize the synergy, where the culture fits, and you bring both teams together and realize the, uh, the synergies, or they kind of go to separate uh, parallel paths. Um, so that integration is incredibly important. And if there are companies that are looking to get acquired or to merge with another company, is there anything that they can do to kind of prepare to make them a bit more, for lack of a better term, appealing to a company? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, there's a lot you can do. I think companies can actually, I've been with companies where I, the day I joined, they said, okay, we're thinking of uh, selling the company or or IPOing. What can we do to make ourselves more attractive? And you start from that point, you look at your strategy, you look at your uh, financials, you look at the landscape and who would be interested and try to craft the message around that. Often the, the most likely acquirers are either suppliers or customers or a major existing major shareholder. Um, so it's already somebody that you have a relationship with. So it's important to sort of build those relationships with the idea that this gives them a chance to get to know each other and then it, it can naturally lend to an acquisition or a merger later. And a lot of what happens in that process is you're 
kind of understanding how the two businesses could fit together and you can expand the relationship from there. So it's interesting. Most people kind of run a company and then go, okay, we want to sell it. Now, what do we do? I think what you'll find, especially with a lot of private equity owned companies or venture backed companies, they start with who would be a natural buyer for this company and how do we move the company along to be better positioned for that? And also um, how do we collect our data? How do we report our business um, to make it easy for others to understand the attractiveness of it? Well, speaking of data, how can NetSuite, have you seen NetSuite play a role in making these uh, mergers and acquisitions easier? Yeah, the important part of that is anytime the, uh, a company looks to acquire another or investor looks to make investment, they want data, right? They want to know historical data. And they often want it not just in the year-end audit financial statement way, but they want it in a way that it's easier to understand the operations, especially if it's a, a business that has multiple parts to it um, that can behave differently. Um, so NetSuite can be really helpful if you set it up correctly to capture a more uh, detailed business and breakdown of the business by part. So you can show if, if you have a total business that's growing at 4%, but there's one part that's growing at 3% and one part that's growing at 100%, you can break that down so people can see that there's uh, where the growth potential is. Or if there's different parts of the business that have different margins, seeing that detailed breakdown, people can say, oh, there's one part of the business that has much higher margin. If we could invest in this and grow it, there's huge growth potential. Um, so next, you can be really helpful in getting the data you need to help tell the story. Again, I'm just hearing, uh, we actually had a, a CFO on maybe a month ago or so, Melissa Harrington. Uh, she's the CFO for Premier Claims and Insurance Brokerage. And Melissa, similarly, like really harped on this idea of letting the data tell the story. And I shouldn't say harp. She, she really dove into it. And I think that's, it's really cool to hear that you're, that you're saying the same thing. Um, and I think this is something that's been, it wasn't just when you became a CFO that this was a story you began to tell because something that stood out to us in your career history was you actually mentioned in, in your controller role that you, you know, you kind of benchmarked various accounting organizations to develop some critical performance metrics. Right. And of course, as a, <laughs> as the company that we are here at NetSuite, um, we're huge fans of, of metrics here. And, uh, we, we actually launched an entire series. It's called metrics that matter. It's really letting the data and then those numbers tell your story, but can you explain what some of the metrics were that you identified, um, and how you identified them as critical numbers to to track? Yeah, I, you know, I was really proud of that experience, and, and I'm so glad you brought it out in this conversation. It's interesting because accounting, we, by definition, all we do is track metrics and performance of the organization. And it was odd to me that we didn't have metrics for our accounting organization, and I didn't really know how to measure the performance of my team if we were doing a great job or not. Um, so I called around the Chevron organization and had friends all around the world and said, how do you measure the performance of your team? And people were great about sharing um, their information. So I benchmarked that and we sort of uh, boiled it down to 16. And there were things like accounts payable, paying it on time, accounts receivable, collecting on time. But there were also performance stuff like, are we doing an annual performance review for each employee at least once a year? Um, there were also controls and compliance. So our year and audit, are we getting no material weaknesses or um, very few uh, deficiencies. And we had metrics around those. Um, so we defined metrics sort of across all the different areas of the business that we thought were important. Um, and then I try to pick a number that seemed to be world-class. And keep in mind, I'm sitting in Buenos Aires, thousands of miles from the headquarter. And 
we sort of propagate that to our employee team. And I put up, I actually had a chart outside my office when people walked by in the morning, they could see all these metrics and I had, and it was a smiley face, frowny face. So it was very easy visually to walk by and be like, oh, we're doing really well on these metrics and room to improve on these others. And it was interesting. It, it became incredibly motivating. I, what I realized was the team didn't know what to work on and how they were getting measured. And before I came, they complained about work-life balance. They were working really long hours because they worked on everything and didn't know what was important. Once we defined what these critical things were, when they achieved those they could go home at the end of the day. So first of all, the hours worked went down and the performance went up and the, the morale also significantly improved because they walked around saying we're a world-class organization and we can prove it with these metrics, which was fantastic. And then the other thing it did is increase the visibility of our organization. Again, thousands of miles from the headquarters, people started noticing that this organization was performing better. And then I was able to get opportunities for my top talent to go internationally uh, because people start seeing us as high-performing organization and a talent pool. So that created a lot of opportunities for my team members, which I was really proud of. And many of them went out um, internationally and got um, uh, promotions and, and uh, tend to do very well at Chevron. So it, it was very powerful for the organization as a whole and also the individuals. Um, right. But you, you measure it and you display it and you track it and, and reward it. And, and on a monthly basis, I'd send our newsletter saying, we did really well here and shout out to so-and-so and so-and-so for driving that. And, and bringing it to today, how, I mean, how are you doing that with expansive in your CFO role? What's the same, what's different? Um, what key P- KPIs are, you know, you specifically paying attention to? How are you measuring success now? Yeah. Um, a lot of financial ones, as you'd imagine, uh, like a lot of companies, we like non-GAAP metrics. By that, I mean, uh, adjusted EBITDA is a big one. Um, I think I read somewhere in Wall Street Journal, over 90% of companies use uh, non-GAAP uh, uh, metrics to give a clearer picture. So we have our financial metrics that come straight out of GAAP and internal uh, year-end audit, but we also have adjusted EBITDA. I like to track OPEX, but I like to track it as a percentage of gross profit. There's always, with a fast-growing company like ours, a trade-off between profitability and growth. How much yeah. do I invest in growth? How much do I push for profitability? Um, so we've got um, a lot of metrics and we're constantly looking at new ones, trying to find leading indicators that give me a sense of how business is going to go in the future. We are onboarding people very quickly onto our platform. And of course, the more people go on our platform, the more we have trading and the more revenue and profit we see. So I also track the number of people that have got on our platform on a weekly basis. Uh, we can track our trading on a daily basis. So a lot of a lot of KPIs. And, and I'm constantly looking to see uh, which ones are more important and which are more insightful. Is there a, is there a metric that you're tracking specifically? I mean, I'm hearing you say these things. Is there something that like, maybe you would, maybe it's not specific to the industry or to expansive um, specifically, but a metric that not a lot of CFOs or finance leaders are tracking that you think is extremely important to track? Um, I like OPEX as a percentage of gross profit. I don't like OPEX flat because our business grew 288% last year. So um, if I say our OPEX increased by 10%, uh, you might think that's a lot. But if you put it in a context of 288% growth in volume, so right. I'd like to look at it as percentage. Uh, we look at some of the same ones that others do, but then there's some that are specific to our business. Uh, price of our commodities, volume of our commodities, it gives us an idea of liquidity on our exchange. So there's some that are specific to us, but we don't. we also use some that are fairly typical in um, 
uh, for most companies. Yeah. And I, I always think some of the common mistakes that we see around metrics is just everyone thinking that they should track the same things as other businesses or that metrics are kind of static and the same ones that are important now will be important in the future. And it's really, it's, it's more dynamic than that. Numbers are more fun. Um, so how are you using NetSuite to help you track some of those KPIs? Uh, we use NetSuite and, and it's interesting because we're an acquisitive company. We acquired uh, three companies last year to this year. And what we do is we move them over to NetSuite if they're not already there. And then it becomes the the single source of truth and everyone's on a common language. So we can understand and share information in a standardized way. And then putting the budget and the actual in NetSuite is, is really powerful because then you can pull that down together and not just see how the actuals are doing, but how they're trending towards budget. And then each budget owner can see their piece of the pie um, and, and they're part of the picture. And that becomes important because people can manage their own business uh, once they have their um, their actuals on budget. Um, so NetSuite is, is just a big enabler. I love that. And so how is this kind of, how are these metrics kind of cascaded across the company? Is there a shared vision of success and how success is measured? Um, you mentioned before in your controller role, kind of making sure everyone was on the same page with sending out newsletters. How do you kind of keep everyone on track here? Yeah. In our company, we use something called outstanding success possibilities. So these are our high-level goals, if you will, for the organization. And then we take those high-level goals, and those are shared within the executive team. Um, and we set those uh, twice a year. We review them. And then below those outside success possibilities, we have key milestones to hit each of those that translate into key metrics and performance goals for each individual. So you start with where you want the company to go and then cascade that down to that means that Susie has to close the books in six days or mm. Susie has to, uh, salesperson has to increase sales, data sales to 10 other customers every month or whatever it is. Um, and then we can, so you can track the corporate goals, but you can also track individual employee performance. And also that makes it uh, great at year end when you're doing performance evaluations to say, hey, Susie did deliver 85% of her goals um, and makes it easy conversation to decide what the um, incentive structure should look like. Well, and kind of speaking of those goals, um, to wrap up here, what are some of the company's outstanding success possibilities today? What are some of your what are some of your goals today, and and how are you uh, how are you tracking success against them? Um, well, we had a couple goals around um, acquisitions and M and A, which we achieved. Very excited about the acquisition of APX that happened earlier this year, and the acquisition of Evolution Markets. Um, and then I had goals around financing for those, uh, which came along pretty well. As, as you've seen, we did a four hundred million dollar financing with Blackstone, which closed in July. Um, and we have some other financing goals to complete Evolution Markets um, and continue to fund the growth. Um, and those are coming along pretty well. Um, I'm going to kick off pretty soon here the budgeting process for next year. And we'll look at the strategic plans that will get updated for next year. And I got to make sure that we develop a budget and spending and resourcing plan that helps us deliver that. So that'll kind of be a big item on my agenda. Um, so M&A, financing, budgeting. And then, of course, it's always closing the books and paying the bills. And I'm building up the finance team just in case there's anybody out there who's a strong finance player. Uh, we're always looking for good people. So we're going to build up the team as we get ready for a year-end audit and year-end close with these newly acquired companies. Um, that's going to be uh, not necessarily a challenge, but it's going to be a significant amount of work for us in the next six months. Wow. Well, congratulations on everything, Susie. Um, 
very awesome to, to talk with you and, and hear your career history. And, you know, really this was some truly awesome insight, um, for all of our listeners who are tuning in. So thank you so much, Susie, for joining us. Kendall, Megan, great meeting you both. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Enjoyed it. And with that, thanks everyone so much for joining us. Well, Megan, another great interview in the books. I love how Susie weaved in the importance of using data to tell a story, whether that's when you're looking to go public, pitching to investors, or even just understanding operating costs. She was fantastic and such an interesting company that she's working for now. I mean, I I think we've both seen the rising importance of companies embracing ESG and corporate social responsibility. So I think expansive is going to be a really important part of that evolution. I agree. I agree. Well, I have to give a big shout out to Susie Tahirian for joining us on this episode. And of course, thank you, Megan, for jumping in and co-hosting. Of course. As always, it's been fantastic hosting with you. And last but certainly not least, I want to extend another big thank you to our editing crew over at Lampstand. And as always, all of you for tuning in. If you want more episodes just like this one, make sure you subscribe to our channel. And if you have time, give us a rate and a review. Thank you so much. And we will talk soon. You just listened to the NetSuite podcast. Be sure to tune in every week with more NetSuite developments, stories, and insights into the benefits of one integrated system to help you run your business.